So as you're probably already aware, this is the second week of Lent. And throughout this Lenten season, we are taking a bit of a different approach. And we're reading uh, the book of Lamentations. As we discovered last week, this can be a very difficult book at times. It is composed of five separate poems, each one filled with unrelenting, unapologetic, unfiltered, uncensored pain, grief, anger, despair, and heartache. And as I said last week, I think this is the perfect book for Lent because we have a tendency in Lent to kind of always look past it and look to the resurrection and not wade through the difficult uh, time that actually is Lent. You know, because we know, right, we know Sunday's coming. And so because of that, we don't really want to acknowledge Friday. We don't want to look into the face of Friday. But the book of Lamentations won't let us off the hook so easily. As we saw, God never speaks in Lamentations. He is spoken of quite often. But God never speaks himself. No easy answers are offered by the poetry in its pages. Now, last week in the first poem, we met two distinct characters, uh, the narrator and then daughter Zion. And daughter Zion is the personification of the city of Jerusalem, which is now in utter ruins. In that first poem, the narrator, he was cold and distant. He reported daughter Zion's devastation without even a quiver in his voice and insisted over and over and over that she brought this upon herself, that she was unfaithful to God. She had many lovers, and as a result, she was ruined, and there was no one to comfort her. A comforter is far from her, she insisted. And the daughter, daughter Zion, on the other hand, she was all over the map. She went from accepting blame, saying the Lord is right, to pointing the finger at God and asking how people can pass her by and not be moved by her grief, not be moved to compassion. And the narrator himself, he, he did neither as well. He, he did not see her, see her, her pain, see her grief, nor did he hear uh, her cries for lament. He simply reported the facts. And so today's reading involves those same two characters, but as you'll see, something has changed a little bit in the narrator. Chapter 2 is almost exclusively from his mouth directly. Yet this time, he doesn't seem to be assigning blame as much as he did before. He's also not nearly as uh, distant, <clears throat> excuse me, distant and detached as he was before. He is moved by her, and his tone begins to shift. And he speaks to us, pretty much, he speaks to us, the reader, uh, but God and God's activity are his obsession. He's obsessed with what God has done. So we'll, we'll do a little bit like we did last time, where I'll read a little bit of the text and then talk a little bit about it, and then read a little bit more and then come back to it. Uh, so the text starts out in chapter 1 with the narrator, and he says this. I'm sorry, chapter 2. The narrator says this. How the Lord in his anger has humiliated daughter Zion. He has thrown down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has destroyed without mercy all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand from them in the face of the enemy. 
He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all in whom we took pride in the tent of daughter Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has destroyed Israel. He has destroyed all its palaces, laid in ruins at strongholds, and multiplied in daughter Judah mourning and lamentation. He has broken down his booth like a garden. He has destroyed his tabernacle. The Lord has abolished in Zion festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation he spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. The clamor was raised in the house of the Lord as on a day of of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of daughter Zion. He stretched the line. He did not withhold his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. His gates, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. Guidance is no more. And her prophets obtain no vision from the Lord. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young girls of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. So as you can hear, the narrator is no longer just a distant observer. He is now very much a a participant in this unbearable reality of what has taken place. And line after line after line, he he gives account of God's violence towards, towards daughter Zion. These verbs of attack and destruction pile up one on top of the other, right? God cast down, does not remember. God swallows up, does not spare throws down in rage. God brings to the ground, cuts down, brings back his hand. God burns, bends his bow, kills all, pours out rage. And as these verbs accumulate, we begin to realize that the narrator's stance has changed significantly from the first poem. This time, he's angry. He's angry like daughter Zion was, and he no longer simply blames the woman for bringing this pain upon herself but begins also to point the finger heavenward and angrily wonders how God could do this to his own beloved daughter Zion. In the first poem, the woman cried out for a comforter, the assumption being that God might come down and comfort daughter Zion. But based on the narrator's comments, we're left to wonder how God could ever be her comforter if he is the one who did this to her, who brought this devastation upon her. His movement from blaming the woman in the first poem to now seemingly bringing charges to God, against God, on her behalf is abrupt, and it's never fully explained. But evidently, her her words deeply moved him, and her plight is now his focus as he details the impact of the divine fury that was brought upon her. Now this, you can probably tell, is not your typical description of God in the Bible. And it's one that I'm sure makes us all a little bit uncomfortable. And he's just getting warmed up. There's more, right? So he continues. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of my people. 
because infants and babes faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter Zion? For vast as the sea is your ruin, who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen oracles for you that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies open their mouths against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have devoured her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. At last we have seen it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his threat. As he ordained long ago, he has demolished without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Cry aloud to the Lord. O wall of daughter Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent, day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. So not only has his heart changed in some way so that he takes pity on this woman, but he himself becomes physically ill, right? His bile is poured out on the ground. His, his body responds to her trauma. Daughter Zion is broken, wounded, and shattered, as he has described. But now he himself also moves into her lonely and comfortless space. The reality of her suffering completely engulfs him. And he then turns to notice an aspect of her suffering that he had previously glossed over, and that is the suffering of her children. Children faint in the streets like the mortally wounded. They cry out for food. Their lives are poured out on their mother's bosoms because they have no sustenance to offer their children. The loss of a child is devastating in any time or place, but in the ancient world in particular, a mother with no children not only experiences deep grief, but she has no hope for the future whatsoever. The future security of women and this time depended on the survival of sons in particular who could support them in their old age. So a city without children is a city with no hope for the future. Daughter Zion's fate is bitter and seemingly hopeless. And then he asks a series of questions. What can I say for you? To what compare you? O daughter Jerusalem, to what can I liken you that I may comfort you? O virgin daughter Zion, the assumed answer to these questions is nothing. I can say nothing that would comfort you. For vast is the sea of your ruin. Who can heal you? Who can heal you when the only one capable of healing you is the one who did this to you? But these questions also mark a significant turn in the poetry. The narrator now directly addresses daughter Zion. Rather than simply speaking about her, he moves to speak 
to her. In other words, he finally sees her, the very thing she cried out for over and over in the first poem. He no longer makes accusations, no longer accuses her of bringing this upon herself, but begins to see the complexity of the situation, spreads the blame around a little bit. The prophets failed her by speaking false and deceptive visions. Those who pass by her have no compassion on her. They, they hiss and wag their heads rather than offering comfort. And God, the one who he thinks should be her comfort and salvation, is the one who he also thinks brought this upon her, for this is what he planned to do. This is what he ordained long ago. And he ends his impassioned speech by calling upon her to speak up, cry out, cry out to the Lord, let the tears stream down like a torrent. Give yourself no rest. Arise and cry out in the night. Pour out your heart like water. Lift your hands to the Lord for the sake of your starving children. And then, for the first time in this poem, daughter Zion herself speaks. Her, his words arouse in her the courage to speak up once again, the strength to speak up once again. And she does exactly what he suggested. She cries out to the Lord. Speaking directly to God, she says, Look, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have born? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? The young and old are lying on the ground in the streets. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. In the day of your anger, you have killed them, slaughtering without mercy. You invited my enemies from all around as if for a day of festival. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I bore and reared, my enemy has destroyed. So the narrator's call worked. She speaks up. Daughter Zion speaks up and cries out to God, just as the narrator called her to do. And in doing so, she attempts to force God to take responsibility for the death that surrounds and engulfs her. You killed them. You slaughtered them. You did not pity, she says. Though the city may have been laid waste by Babylon, the foreign occupiers, she knows, or at least she thinks she knows, that this was God's doing. And perhaps if she lays enough blame on God, God will then be forced to come down and comfort her. Once again, she calls on God to see, to see what has become of her and her children, not to look away, but to see. But as with, this, as with the first poem, again, God does not show up. God does not speak. Now, as, as readers of the Bible, we may expect that as she accuses God and calls God out, that God may, like as in the book of Job, God may come to her and set the record straight, right? Job cried out enough, called God out enough, shook his fist enough to the point that God came to him in a whirlwind and set the record straight. You know, if she could just get God face to face like Job did, if he could just have, have an audience with God, then maybe she would be fine. God, she would know that God had heard her cry. She would have a comforter. But for her, God's silence is deafening. And God's perceived absence is crippling. But all is not completely lost. In both of these first two poems, 
Her request is very simple. She does not ask for the city to be restored. She doesn't ask for her enemies to be vanquished, at least not here. She did last time. She doesn't even ask for her people to be returned to the city. She simply wants to be seen and heard. Look, O Lord, and consider. And while she she may still feel as though God is absent and that God does not see or hear her, the narrator, who was previously cold, distant, detached, has been moved to pity and compassion for daughter Zion. He sees her and he hears her. He has become a witness for her and an advocate on her behalf. He cries out with her. He bears witness to her pain and acknowledges her suffering that is as vast as the sea. And I think it's significant that after this poem, the character of the daughter Zion essentially disappears from the book of Lamentation. She has spoken her peace. She cried out for someone, anyone, to see and hear her pain. She didn't ask for it to be fixed, for her problems to be solved. She just wanted to be heard, for her pain to be acknowledged. And now that it has, she recedes from the narrative. She has gained a witness and an advocate and a companion in her suffering who sees, who pays attention, who recognizes the immeasurable, overwhelming power of her suffering. In the narrator, Zion has found a comforter, even if it wasn't the comforter that she had hoped for or expected. What we see in the movement of the narrator from detached observer to compassionate witness, I think shows us what it means to be a witness of each other's pain. When we are struck by grief, overcome by sorrow, devastated by fear, what we need is not a comforter who has all the answers or who can fix all of our problems in one fell swoop, but a comforter who bears witness to the reality of our pain. What we need is someone who understands that compassion quite literally means to suffer with. In his book, Lament for a Son, Nicholas Wolterstorff reflects on the tragic death of his 19-year-old son in a mountain climbing accident. And he says this, but please don't say it's really not so bad, because it is. Death is awful, demonic. If you think your task as a comforter is to tell me that really all things considered, it's not so bad, you do not sit with me in my grief, but place yourself off in the distance away from me. Over there, you are of no help. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come sit beside me on my morning bench. You have to come close. This is exactly what happens to the narrator. He comes close. He moves from being this detached, distant observer to coming and sitting beside her, sitting beside daughter Zion on her morning bench. And he gives her the freedom and the license to grieve and to lament and to cry out. He is transformed by seeing and hearing and attending to her pain. He listens to her testimony and it alters the way he sees the world. His conversion results from being able 
to let her unspeakable reality into his being, into his body even. And when he does that, everything changes for him and for her. So we are called to be like the narrator, the nameless narrator whom we know nothing about, who bore witness to the deep and profound pain of daughter Zion. We are called to be witnesses to one another's pain, to give each other the freedom and the authority and the license to grieve and to lament and to cry out, to suffer with, to come close to one another, to sit next to each other on our morning bench. And in a certain sense, in a very real sense, I think the narrator stands in for God, where God is otherwise absent. We tend to think, well, God doesn't show up in this poem. But I wonder if God shows up in a very real way in the presence of the narrator with daughter Zion, where she cries out to God for a comforter, and he says, a comforter is far from me. And then he becomes for her that very comforter. In this season of Lent, we are reminded that we worship the God who came close to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We worship the God who gave himself up for us, who walked with us in our pain and in our suffering and walked directly to the cross that we might be redeemed. This is the God we worship, the God who comes close. And so we share that love and that presence of God by coming close to one another. Amen.